Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. I have you loud and clear. (laughs) Hello. 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 Welcome. Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology with me, Chris Smith, and with Katie Haler. Today we're talking electric cars. We get someone to drive one for a few days to find out how easy the switch to electric might be. And news of the brainy computer that's made a breakthrough against superbugs and on Mars why the little green men are quaking in their boots. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first this week, while the world races to find drugs and a vaccine to combat the COVID-19 coronavirus, we also face an ongoing significant threat from antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But now researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have announced that they've been using artificial intelligence, in other words, computers that can think for themselves, to dream up new infection-fighting drugs. They've used the new system to discover an antibiotic called halicin, and it's proving to be very good at stopping bacterial superbug infections in experimental mice and could soon be tested on people. The other piece of good news is that this AI system might also help to develop drugs to fight the new coronavirus too. Jim Collins. The issue we set out to solve was antibiotic resistance. We are facing a global crisis. Bacterial pathogens, those that cause nasty infections, are growing, increasingly resistant to antibiotics, which means they're not responsive to antibiotics. Due to the overuse of these drugs, the number of new antibiotics being developed and approved is dramatically dropping as pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies are getting out of the antibiotics industry. So here at MIT, we decided to see if we could harness the power of artificial intelligence, also called AI, in order to address the antibiotic resistance crisis. Well, just before we consider how you've done that, Jim, you said something quite interesting, which is that, A, we need a lot of antibiotics, but pharmaceutical companies are deserting this industry like rats off a sinking ship. Why? The economics for antibiotics is broken, and there are many reasons for it. One is that it costs just as much to develop an antibiotic as it does another drug, for example, say one to treat cancer or to treat blood pressure. Antibiotics, however, are only prescribed for very short periods of time. You take an antibiotic for a few days, maybe a week, whereas you take a blood pressure medicine for the rest of your life. And so the economics for delivery and use are quite low. Second is that as one comes up with new antibiotics, they're actually not being prescribed out of concern for resistance to arise. So as new antibiotics were being developed and approved, they were being shelved. And so companies couldn't even sell their product. So how can AI help to address what is an economic disincentive then for the pharmaceutical industry to go down this path? We wanted to see if we could harness AI to quickly and inexpensively expand our antibiotic arsenal and thereby significantly de-risking the what's called preclinical, so the stage of development before you move to human trials, coming up with whole new molecules that could overcome existing resistance and thereby dramatically dropping the economic barriers. So in our project, 
we trained an AI model. So this is a computer-based model with information on existing drugs against E. coli. So E. coli is a bug found in our guts, often harmless to us, but in many cases can be harmful. We've all heard of scares around uh, contaminated meats. In this case, we looked to see which of these FDA drugs would have some antibacterial activity. So could it inhibit the growth of E. coli or kill it? And we took those data along with the information about each of those drugs to train this computer-based model to learn molecular features. So features of those molecules that are associated with an antibiotic or being antibacterial. So the AI is interrogating the actual physical shape of the molecule. It knows what, what works against these particular microbes. We train it so that it can learn which of the features, even at an atom-by-atom atom level, of these chemical compounds appear to be associated with antibacterial activity. We then applied the model to a drug repurposing library that consisted of 6,100 molecules that had been developed as drugs or were explored as possible drugs to treat various conditions. And asked the model to do two things. One was to identify molecules that are predicted to be antibacterial or good antibiotics, but two, to then only identify within that subset molecules that don't look like our existing antibiotics. And in that drug repurposing library, one molecule fit those criteria, and that molecule is what we call halicin, which is one of the most powerful antibiotics discovered to date in its ability to kill a wide range of bacterial pathogens. This included pathogens that are pan-resistant, that is, resistant to effectively all antibiotics. TB, tuberculosis, which has the highest number of deaths as a bacterial pathogen around the world, it was able to kill a pathogen called C. diff that's a nasty gut pathogen. And Hallison was also able to kill a bug called a Cinebacter baumani, which is a weird-sounding bug, but it's also called the Iraqi bug. It's a bug the U.S. soldiers and U.K. soldiers coming back from service in Iraq and Afghanistan with a Cinebacter baumani infections, basically in skin wounds. And our existing antibiotics don't treat it well. And we showed that Hallison could actually treat those infections very effectively in skin wound models in mice. Now, given that the world is currently in the grip of a potential pandemic caused by this coronavirus, is it possible that you could take the technique you developed and then ask of the enormous repertoire of drug molecules we already have, we could try some of those and see if we can find a drug that we might not have considered, but which might give us an opportunity to intervene with this new pandemic? In principle, one could consider using this platform, a related platform, to address that challenge. The difficulty in applying it to a viral infection like the coronavirus is getting after appropriate data to train the AI model. So what we don't have in many cases are good experimental setups in the lab they would allow us first to explore which molecules are having an effect. And so, for example, in the case of coronavirus, I'm not aware of good cell-based models to get those data. If one had those cell-based experiments that you could generate the data, then, then I think this type of platform could become really quite valuable. So knowledge really is power. That was Jim Collins. He's at MIT. And incidentally, if you were wondering why they called it Hal Isin. It's named after Hal, which was the supercomputer in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, and that had a mind of its own. His work has just come out in the journal Cell.
Now, while antibiotics work against bacteria, they don't affect viruses like the new coronavirus, which is steadily spreading around the world. At the moment, many countries are adopting a containment strategy where they identify cases and then track down the people they've been in contact with to isolate them and stop the spread. But finding out where people have been and therefore whom they've been infecting is very labour-intensive and it's very slow. But computer scientist Ramsey Farragher from the company Focal Point Positioning thinks there might be a very quick, a very simple and extremely cheap way to do this using technology that we already have literally at our fingertips and in our pockets. So Ramsey, what is your idea? Well, Chris, as you said, it's a very labour-intensive process at the moment when people are announced to have the virus. They're basically asked to write down on a piece of paper all the people they've interacted with for the last two weeks, which is crazy that we're still doing this in 2020, when our smartphones in our pockets are a brilliant way of storing, gathering and quickly using all of that information in a much more reliable way than we can do ourselves. How does your smartphone know whom you have been rubbing up against though? So there's a few ways you could use your smartphone to solve this problem. The one I'd propose is the Bluetooth connection. One of the radios in our phones is Bluetooth. It's very short range, it's very low power, and for most phones it's on all the time. Uh, We use it to use wireless headphones, wireless mice, and to exchange contact details with other people's phones. But it's an aura around our phones all the time. So my phone right now knows that your phone is within the same room as me because they're talking to each other over Bluetooth. What I would propose is we could store this data in our phones. And if I was infected with COVID-19, we could just ask my phone to give me instantly the list of all of the other phones I've been in contact with for the last two weeks. That presupposes, though, that my phone, when it tells your phone via Bluetooth that it's my phone, that you know who my phone is and you can come find me. A system like what I'm proposing would involve the unique IDs of each phone's being shared and then encrypted on the device. It wouldn't be the case that you would need to give me your data. It's a simple, uh, unique identifier that the phones always share with each other. But if you need, at the end of the day, to identify that you have been in contact with me to have exposed me to this virus, let's say, you do ultimately need to know I've got my phone on me. And there are two problems, aren't there? One is that you you have to know that I own that phone, so you've got to know how to find me or someone has. And B, you're assuming that I've got the phone. It wasn't that Katie Haler stole Chris's phone and was on the bus with it, and it was actually Katie who's got the contact, not Chris. Sure, that's certainly a potential issue if people are sharing devices. But I would suspect that you use your phone much more often than Katie does. So uh, the risk of false positives is probably lower than you remembering if you'd met me in the last two weeks. How practical is this to implement? And how much of a difference could it make if we were to do this? It's trivial to implement. It's possibly the case that many of the apps in our phones are already doing similar things already. I wouldn't be surprised if social networking apps were already doing this as part of how they work. Every time you use LinkedIn or Facebook, it tries to recommend to you another new friend. It is a mixture of online networks and physical networks that they're using to determine whether you've just met me and if you should be recommended as a new contact to me. Have you put this to anybody who could be in a position to implement this? I have not, but maybe we should, Chris. Yeah, well, I'm thinking you should. I just wondered what sort of a reaction you get. Do people worry about the fact that that all of a sudden this this could be regarded as another means of cyber surveillance? Or are people generally supportive? They could see the merit in this because you could potentially know exactly who you've been in contact with and to do contact tracing in situations like this. I have no doubt that something like this could save a lot of lives if it was implemented. 
there are issues of it being misused, but that's the case with anything like this. As long as it's used for the reasons it's being put in place for, then it's used in the right way. Ramsey, thank you very much. A very exciting idea. And uh, if you head to Ramsey's website, actually, if you look up focal point positioning, you've actually written an article and a blog post about this, haven't you? So take a look if you want to find out a few more details about Ramsey's suggestion. That's Ramsey Farragher, as I say, from Focal Point Positioning in Cambridge. Hiya, I'm Phil Sansom, and I host the Naked Genetics podcast. Genetics is huge right now, from those home DNA testing kits to futuristic gene therapies to treat diseases. And if, like me, you're just trying to get a grip on what genes can and can't tell you, then this might be the show for you. Each month, we are telling scientific detective stories and shining a light in directions you might not expect, like gene sequencing a puppy. Or maybe tearing apart a flower. Oh boy, you've taken all the parts off. Well, that one I messed up, so that shows you how how good he had to get at this. And even drinking a bunch of gin. (laughs) (laughs) Don't miss out. Subscribe to Naked Genetics wherever you get your podcasts. On the way, what is it like to drive and charge an electric car? We're putting one to the test to find out, so stay tuned. First, though, we're shooting off to Mars because there's news out in the last week that the red planet is seismically active and it experiences what we're dubbing Marsquakes. Katie has this report. NASA's InSight mission is tasked with finding out what's going on inside the red planet. In November 2018, the static lander arrived on the surface and got to work. Now, the publication of several papers worth of data are revealing its findings so far. And the Open University's planetary geoscientist David Rothery gave me the lowdown. Well, in 10 months, there have been not far short of 200 separate Mars quakes. Now, most of them are small events and they appear to be vibrations that have travelled just through the crust. That's, That's the outermost rocky layer of the planet. And they're not very well understood but there have been 24 recorded that measure magnitude 3 to magnitude 4 on, on the Richter scale, which have caused vibrations which have been strong enough to travel through the crust into the mantle and then back out to the surface where the detector is. These Mars quakes are detected by InSight's seismometer sitting on Mars's surface. It's essentially a very sensitive microphone that records the planet's vibrations. They can pinpoint the source of some of these quakes. At least two of these appear to be in a a region about a 1,000 kilometres from the lander called Kerberos Fossae. This is where the surface is quite badly fractured, some quite deep chasms there, where people had previously suggested there were earthquakes. As you can see, where boulders have tumbled down slopes and bounced through recent sand dunes. So something recently disturbing the ground. Could that be Mars quakes? Well, now it seems that inference was right because Mars quakes have been pinpointed back to that very region. So what's actually causing these Mars quakes? Well, these Mars quakes are not like the big earthquakes we get on the Earth, which are at the boundaries between moving plates. Mars's crust and upper mantle is not divided into rigid plates sliding around on a plastic interior like we have on the Earth. The quakes on Mars are like what happens 
inside Earth's continents where stresses just cause some fracturing or some buckling or something like that. So they're relatively small. They're like the biggest quakes that we occasionally get in the UK. But Mars's crust, the rigid outer layer, is under stress. And now and then the stress overcomes the strength of the rock and the rock fractures, and that's a Mars quake. Now that we know for sure that Mars is, indeed, quaking, how does this help us better understand the geology of our planetary neighbour? Well, we'd like a few more quakes um, before we extrapolate too wildly, but we do know, number one, Mars is active today. Quakes are definitely happening. Previously we inferred them, now we've seen them. It's likely that part of the mantle is mushy because... The shaking waves, so-called S-waves, do not travel very well at all through part of a mantle, whereas the compressional waves do travel quite well. So we're beginning to understand the mechanics of inside Mars. And looking ahead, could these findings have any impact on, perhaps one day, a base on Mars? What we're learning about the properties of the shallow crust um, will help because we want to know what we're building on. But some people have been saying on on social media, oh, there are Mars quakes, it's too dangerous to go and put bases there. That's that's completely untrue. You wouldn't uh, refuse to build a base in the UK because there's occasionally a magnitude 3 earthquake here or in the middle of Siberia because there's a magnitude 3 earthquake every so often. Mars is perfectly safe seismically. You wouldn't build a base in the bottom of one of the chasms on Kerberos Fossae because you've got a great big cliff above you and a boulder could fall off if dislodged by an earthquake. That's common sense. We're not learning from this that we shouldn't go to Mars because Mars quakes occur. We're understanding about the interior of the planet from what Mars quakes can tell us. David Rothery there from the Open University. And those new findings on Mars have been published in Nature Geoscience and Nature Communications. Now back down here on Earth and onto the roads. You often hear the phrase vehicle emissions and it might make you think that we're talking about exhausts, but actually tyre wear accounts for nearly half of road transport air particulate emissions. And a student group at Imperial College London and the Royal College of Art have announced this week that they have made a device that can capture the bits of tyre that come off of cars and all around the world, I think it adds up to billions of tonnes of lost rubber and other things. And with us to explain how it works is Master's student Hanson Cheng, so am I right? Billions of tons of wear particles from tyres all over the world, Hans? Yeah, so there's actually half a million tons produced in Europe annually. Just um, in Europe. So when you add Europe to the rest, of the rest of the world, it's going to be a huge amount. It, it adds up. Tyre wear is actually the second largest microplastic pollutant after single-use plastics. And tyres wear off every time we accelerate, brake, and turn a corner. And the particles are actually small enough to become airborne, which are linked to lung diseases and the ones that make into the waterways affect marine life as well as enters our food chain. While electric cars are great and developments in renewable energy, tailpipe emissions are projected to fall quite significantly. But tire wear will increase because of the heavier battery and torque of the car. Yeah, that's a very good point. So basically, you know, as we move towards an electrified future, while we're dealing with one form of pollution... Actually, there's one very important one that's still there, like the elephant in the room, and that is the wear particles of tyres. Have you got a solution that will work then? So we discovered that particles coming off tyres are charged due to friction with the road. So we created a device that captures particles using electrostatics, collecting them at source and preventing them from even entering our environment. Why, Why are they charged? From friction. 
uh, with the road surface. So it's rather like rubbing a balloon on your head and then sticking it on the wall. You get some static electricity. The particles flying off the back of the tyre are charged in the same way. Yeah, so that's actually one of our first experiments. Uh, we took a sandpaper to a wheel, rubbed the balloon, and saw that the particles jumped up and down. And so we built a test rig to test our initial idea. And we explored different ways of geometries to maximize surface area to collect the particles. And we're currently at about 60% efficient. Is this a bit like, you know how you have a, a mud guard on the back of the car that sort of dangles down and is there to cut down spray? Does it work in the same sort of way that you've got your trap deployed on that so that as the particles come up, they're passing over that and it's charged and can attract them rather like iron filings are attracted to a magnet? Yeah, so our current device is attached on the wheel and harnesses the uh, spin of the wheel as well as its position to take an account of all the air flows around the wheel to direct the particles into our device and then electrostatics works to capture them. And how effective is it? Do you know roughly what proportion of the particles that would otherwise end up in my lungs get caught? Currently in our test rig, we're capturing 60% of all airborne particles tested over one hour intervals. But the next steps would be to put our device on a car and see how it performs. Why is it only 60%? I don't mean that in a disparaging way. 60% is a lot better than 0%. But why is there that 40% missing? A lot of that is just because of the position of the device. It needs to be as close as possible to the contact patch. But then you also have to be wary of um, hitting speed bumps and such. So we'll have to position further away than we want to than the contact patch. And how does it hold on to the particles once it's got them in the first place? How do you make sure they don't fall off again? So once they're collected on the plates, we're using various cleaning mechanisms to gather them in a storage unit. And then once they're in a storage unit, they could be removed. These particles are actually small enough that they could be reused. So once we collect it, we can actually use it back into the manufacturing process of tires, as well as different applications, more creative applications, such as extracting them for dyes and 3D printing. What's the energy cost of doing this, though? Is it going to add a lot of effectively miles to the gallon to a car if you were to deploy this? That is something we're currently looking at. Uh, we're at the proof-of-concept stage, and our next prototypes would consider more cost-effective ways to develop a device that's more integrated. And could you retrofit this? I know that you've got the electric car market in mind, but existing vehicles are a major headache with this. Could you retrofit to the existing road stock? Yeah, so we're looking into uh, retrofitting them on buses just because uh, they produce more per kilometre, basically from their weight. And they have a regular maintenance schedule that we could tap into to remove the cartridge and send it back to us. It's a brilliant and very, very cheap idea. So thank you very much for coming in and telling us about it. That's Hanson Cheng. He's at Imperial College London and the Royal College of Art. And you'll be hearing a lot more about electric cars later on in this programme. Finally, though, we were very saddened to hear of the recent death of NASA's mathematical legend, Catherine Johnson. It was her calculations that got men to the moon and safely home again. Indeed, some astronauts refused to fly unless she'd personally looked at the figures. Adam Murphy has been reflecting on her contribution to the space race. Catherine Johnson, legendary NASA mathematician, passed away on February 24th at the age of 101. Johnson was renowned for her mathematical abilities. She began work at NASA's predecessor, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, where she was a human computer, reading the black box data from aeroplanes. She spent her time there, segregated by both her race and her gender. Eventually, though, it was impossible to ignore her mathematical skill and she began assisting with NASA space flights, although she still faced pervasive discrimination. 
She calculated the trajectories rockets needed to be launched at and even the times at which it was possible to launch them at all. Overcoming the barriers faced by black women in the sciences, Johnson's work is part of so many iconic moments in NASA's history. Johnson calculated the trajectory for the rocket and the launch window for Alan Shepard's 1961 mission that made him the first American in space. And when electronic computers began to be used at NASA, astronaut John Glenn refused to accept the figures until they had been checked by Johnson, stating, If she says the numbers are good, I'm ready to go. Johnson was involved in the first mission that put men on the moon, helping to calculate the launch trajectory. And when Apollo 13 announced that, Houston, we have a problem, Johnson's work on backup procedures helped to get them home safely. Johnson's contributions to the history of space travel went relatively unrecognised for decades. But in 2015, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama, the highest civilian honour the United States gives. And she and her colleagues were also the focus of the 2016 film Hidden Figures. A fitting honour for someone whose work has impacted so much of modern science. NASA mathematician Katherine Johnson, who died recently aged 101. If you'd like to find out more about any of the news stories we've covered this week, all of the transcripts and the papers can be found on our website, nakedscientists.com. Well, now it's time for that part of the programme, The Mailbox, where we delve into our mailbag and see what you've been sending in. If you want to get in touch, it's chris at thenakedscientists.com. John, he got in touch about the piece on beavers. He says... And just for context, we were explaining that there is a project to add beavers back into the wild following their extinction about 400 years ago in the UK because they're regarded as important ecosystem engineers and therefore might be able to help us mitigate some of the flood risk in the flooding that we've been having in the UK recently. John says, where I live, we have lots of beavers. They plug up culverts because they don't like the sound of running water. They create large dams, eat the local vegetation and then move on. A few years later, the dams burst and then they wash out roads. My picture of reality is very different from the one I heard on the programme. I'm sure they are good in some senses, but what was said was not even handed. So John, obviously not a fan of beavers. And if you want to get in touch with any comments or questions you've got about the show, then you can do so via email. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We always like hearing your thoughts and feedback. And also, if you'd like to leave us a review, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sounds, perfect music for audio and video productions. And now it's time to buckle up. Okay, breakdown. Mm-hmm. Press the go the go button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of the screens have just come on. Do I have to take the handbrake off first? I would take the handbrake off first. Oh, you have to hold it for quite a while. Yeah, if you push the brake. Ah. So it won't be happy yet. There you go. Reverse. You want to press the brake. Do you, so you have yeah. to press the brake to get yeah, out so of it all knows these that you're that in I'm control. Here. Okay. Yeah. Be careful when you're coming off because it will roll. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, we are moving. It's so quiet. <laughs> Now, as countries, including the UK, pass laws that will ban the sale of diesel and petrol vehicles in the relatively near future, we're being urged to move to EVs, electric vehicles. 
How practical is this, though? And is the technology, both the cars and the electrical infrastructure that's needed to charge them, up to the challenge? Well, this week, Megan McGregor from the team puts an electric car through its paces and finds out how well it fits into her everyday life. We'll also be hearing about how the batteries that power electric cars work, about the practicalities of charging electric vehicles, and we consider what provisions are in place for recycling these new vehicles at the ends of their lives. To kick us off, though, what's actually powering the average electric car? Well, with us is chemist David Hall, who works on battery technology at the University of Cambridge. First of all, David, what is a battery and how does one work? Every battery, whether it's a lead acid in your petroleum-based vehicle, whether it's a watch battery or your cell phone lithium-ion battery, it always has two electrodes. They're solid pieces of material and they're separated by an electrolyte that's made up of a salt and some sort of a solvent. So lead acid, it uses acid dissolved in water. Lithium ion uses a lithium salt dissolved in an organic solvent, which is carbon-based. How does it actually make electricity? Batteries use the principle of electrochemistry, where we can convert between chemical energy and electricity. And we do this by passing current through a wire outside, and then there's a current inside the battery that flows through that electrolyte. That's the movement of those charged particles in the salt. So when a battery is charged up versus discharged, what's the chemical difference? So in the case of a lithium-ion battery, basically we take lithium from one material on the positive and we move it into the layers of the material on the negative side. And that's a very unstable, high-energy arrangement and it wants to get back to how it was before. So when it's in that unstable state, it's, right. it's charged. Exactly. And when it flows sort of down the energy hill, as it were, to get back to the other material where it's more comfortable, exactly. that's discharged. Correct, exactly. So that's why it wants to push electricity round the circuit, because to make that journey, the lithium has got to surrender some charge round the circuit first. Exactly. And it's a much more controlled way to release energy than, say, burning fuel, which just releases heat uncontrollably, basically. And the cars that are being put on the roads that are electric vehicles, do they just use the same technology, the same lithium batteries, effectively, that, that are in my mobile phone? They're very similar in many ways. What's different is the exact components or composition of those materials, especially the positive electrode material. So a lot of phones will have cobalt, whereas modern batteries will have cobalt, nickel, manganese, aluminum, and some combination. David, talking of phones, my mobile phone battery is, oh, it's really in need of replacement. Why do batteries degrade over time? As you're using your battery, ideally all of these changes, moving lithium from one side to the other, is completely reversible. But unfortunately, there are these side reactions. You can think of it like how your car rusts with time. It just slowly degrades those materials and they break down. And you also slowly degrade that organic solvent that I mentioned releasing gases and oxygen and that sort of thing. Can you then tweak the chemistry to try and fix that problem? Absolutely. And this is a huge area of research in the UK and around the world to understand what exactly is causing those different degradation parasitic reactions. How can you slow them or control them or even just predict them reliably? What about habits, though? Bad charging habits for batteries? I'm thinking of phones, but I guess with electric cars, it must be a similar sort of thing, right? Certainly for phones and laptops, the best thing you can do is make sure they don't get too hot. So don't leave it running full power in your shag carpeting where it gets really, really hot. Heat is the main thing. The guy who invented lithium batteries got the Nobel Prize, didn't he? 
Why are we still married to lithium, though, David? Why have we not found an even better chemical or a better way of doing this? Because people say to me, although lithium batteries have made us a sort of revolution in storable energy, they're still not without their constraints. As Katie says, her phone's clapping out. My laptop will only run for 10 minutes now compared to it used to be five hours. The main concept of lithium-ion batteries really hasn't changed. Take lithium out of one side, put it into the negative electrode on the other. But those materials are significantly different than the original ones that got that prize. So modern battery chemistry is actually very different, and you can hold something like two or three times as much energy in the same space. So there is a lot of progress, even within lithium-ion. We mentioned charging habits. I'm just curious if you have any advice for charging habits when it comes to an electric vehicle in terms of the battery. That's a huge area of research as well that I've spent many years thinking about, especially how can I charge a vehicle very quickly? And usually the faster you charge it, the more damaging and more destructive it is on it. So you try to make things more conductive so that ions and electricity can flow more quickly and more easily. And that's really a design aspect for where we think these vehicles will be used, how we think they'll be used. So it's just a question really then of of not abusing your battery, Exactly. Is, there, is there technology built into batteries to, to stop us abusing them? Into Absolutely. Devices? Yeah, and it's a huge area in engineering to build what we call battery management systems that regulate the temperature, that try not to pass too much current into one battery too quickly. It's another area of development that the automakers are really getting better at. David Hall, thank you very much. Now, it turns out that car batteries and phone batteries have quite a bit in common, as Elspeth Brown from the electric car company Octopus explains to Megan McGregor as they navigate the streets of Cambridge. How often would you let your phone run to zero battery? Probably not very often, right? You keep your car kind of topped up as you're going along. You might only be driving two, three miles a day or 30 miles a day. You wouldn't need to charge it every day. Once you've got your head around it and you start thinking in price per kilowatt hour rather than price per gallon and and that sort of thing. That's where the switch happens. Indeed, but apart from the potential to avoid pollution and power a vehicle with renewable energy, electric vehicles also offer another advantage. When the vehicle's standing idle, which, let's face it, most cars do most of the time, the batteries that supply them are also ideally suited to powering the national grid. And that's where companies like Octopus have seen a gap in the market. The idea is quite simple. Your car gets charged with surplus electricity when energy is cheap and readily available. Then, when the tables are turned and the grid needs a helping hand, your car sells some of its stored energy back to support the supply. But first, you need to plug it in. Megan again. We've just opened the, I want to say petrol cap, electricity cap. Um, And there's two sockets inside. One's got an orange cap on top that I'm just going to open. This is on the front of the car, not the side of the car like a petrol cap. So now I have the cable and one end goes into the car. And presumably the other end goes into the charging now I have the RFID tag, which just looks like loyalty points card, for example. And I scan that on the thing. And now the blue lights on the dashboard are flashing and the car is charging. And so if I wanted to, I could go about my business now. And it's as simple as that. (laughs) 
Megan was plugging in at the Maddingley Park and Ride there in Cambridge. But charging the car at home can unlock some interesting opportunities. It's possible for electric vehicles to put electricity back onto the grid via a process known creatively as vehicle-to-grid. Claire Miller, Director of Technology and Innovation at Octopus Electric Vehicles, laid out what you need to make this work. You need a car which is suitably enabled. Nissan Leaf is one of the very few vehicles that can do that and a special charger which can take the energy back from the car as well as to put it into the car. When you plug your car in around five, six, seven o'clock at night, you would see the car start to put energy back onto the grid. And that's because at that time of night, everyone comes home, wants to make their tea, put on the television, use a lot of electricity. And so that's a good time for your car to be able to give some electricity back to the grid. And then overnight in the small hours of the morning when electricity is cheap on the grid and often uh, there's a lot of it available, particularly as we have more renewables becoming available. So, for example, on a windy night, there's lots of electricity on the grid that needs to go somewhere. You would see your car start to charge up. We know that over time, lots of charging and discharging can lead to battery degradation. Just look at what happens to your phone battery life. So what does the added charge and discharge of vehicle-to-grid do to your car battery life? Well, turns out not all battery cycles are created equally. Early studies are showing that the way that a vehicle-to-grid cycle works for the car battery is actually a really um, safe way to charge and discharge the battery. If you imagine when you're doing a vehicle-to-grid cycle, you plug the car in, the way that the energy is removed from the battery, we've done a lot of work to make sure that our, we call them battery profiles, is done in a very smooth way. If you compare that with the way that we drive our electric vehicles, we might be driving in town, stop, start, accelerating, braking, and then out onto the motorway, so driving fast and then slowing down again for traffic. That's a much more uncontrolled way of using our battery. Discharging the battery, using energy from the battery to put it back onto the grid is a much smoother way of using energy. The jury is still out on the long-term effects of vehicle-to-grid on battery life. Some studies suggest it might improve long-term battery life, while others have suggested neutral or negative outcomes. It all seems to depend on how much battery degradation happens while the car is at a standstill. However, the advantages of vehicle-to-grid extend beyond a potential increase in electric vehicle battery life. It could help improve the resilience of our electricity grid. So the advantages for the grid, when there's that spike in demand at tea time, uh, it gives access to sources of energy beyond, say, burning gas, which in the UK we, we do to meet that demand very quickly. Um, so it really helps to balance the grid. And what that means is that lots of people are demanding or asking to use electricity. And so the grid has to get it from somewhere. If that somewhere is going to be electric car batteries, some pretty sophisticated management software is required. For one user, it can be a smart meter or a phone app. But for a whole fleet of vehicles, software that can coordinate charging and discharging will be needed. Vehicle-to-grid advocates see this technology as part of a new approach to home energy management, where the car is just one part of a larger system that gives consumers much finer control over their energy usage. Vehicle-to-grid is just one way in which we'll be able to control and decide where we use energy and where we put energy in the future. If you imagine a home which has um, solar panels on the roof, 
and maybe a static battery in the garage, for example. Maybe you've got a Nissan Leaf as well. We are looking at developing systems where you'll be able to choose, do I charge my car with energy from the grid, for example, because it's nighttime, there's lots of wind, so it's green energy on the grid and it's very, very cheap. So you might choose to charge your car from the grid and you might charge to top up your home battery from the grid as well. Another time, it might be tea time, for example, tea time uh, peak demand, and you might choose to actually put energy from your car and or your battery back on the grid because you know that the grid needs the energy and you might get paid for it. So we are absolutely looking at ways of helping people to control and decide where they use energy, how they store it at home. Most people don't have a way of storing energy at the moment and making those decisions. So both on a financial perspective, will I get paid for it? Will it be cheap for me? And also, is it a green way of charging my car or can I help the grid by avoiding burning fossil fuels? Claire Miller there. Thank you very much. We're talking about electric vehicles this week. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We heard from Graham Southern, who says one of the unexpected benefits of driving an electric vehicle is reduced brake wear. Because an electric vehicle uses regenerative braking, we set our regen to max, and it's possible to drive the car using regen braking for the most part, but you do still need conventional brakes for the last bit or for emergencies. Thank you, Graham. Now, Claire mentioned green ways to charge your car. And a lot of electric cars have zero emissions emblazoned on the side, but they're only as green as the energy used to charge them. Renewable energy is becoming more available, but it's not necessarily on tap 24-7. For instance, the sun doesn't shine at night. Catherine Toghill is at the University of Lancaster, where she works on battery technology, which might be one answer to this. So how big is this as a problem, Catherine? Why is this really an issue? Renewable electricity has been penetrating the market at a significant rate over the last few years. We use a third of it as this intermittent energy. So we need some kind of mediator between the energy generation and the use on the grid to actually balance that out. And that's where these batteries come in. Is it as simple as the kinds of batteries one puts in a torch? You just have loads and loads of those and you put them near your wind farm or you put them near your solar array or even in your house and you just basically use them like an energy sponge. They soak up any surplus when you don't need it. Is that basically the concept? That is basically the concept, yes. So what's not to like? The cost of the system is the issue. So the problem with the batteries we've made for these portable technologies like for electric vehicles or for your phone, anything like that, is that they're designed for high power, high usage. They're designed to be lightweight. They're designed for a completely different profile of energy use. Whereas these stationary energy systems, they need to take on large amounts of energy. They need to scale up on a considerably higher scale than your portable systems and they need to deliver that energy in a smoother way as well. I suppose that uh, weight, when you're talking about a stationary battery that's just parked on a site or even in your utility room, is less of an issue than it is for an electric vehicle where the battery's got to be a certain weight, a minimum, and presumably also got to fit certain specifications because it's got to be a certain size and fit into a certain space in the car. You're less constrained with a domestic or, or a wind farm system. Yeah, so you are now got a completely different area of chemistry to be exploring because you're not so constrained anymore. 
The other issue is that what we really want from a stationary storage system is something that has longevity. So now lifetime really matters and the depth of your cycling really matters. So whereas earlier we were talking about your batteries dying very quickly in, in your phone or in your laptop, we can't have that happening in stationary storage. So that's where the alternatives to what we already have are coming in. That's where new uh, chemistry is being designed. Now when you say new chemistry... In other words, we're not just going to take the batteries that work in an electric car and just basically repackage them for domestic use. You could do that, but actually you're saying you could do it better. Yeah, there'd be no advantage to that. First of all, there's going to be high demand for lithium ions. So lithium is not that sustainable if every kind of technology is going to be using it. So where we can switch to a different chemistry, that's a better um, idea generally. The alternative chemistries we can be using will have a different design entirely as well so we don't need that high power we don't need that fast charge capability so we can start looking at things like flow batteries where you're working with completely different metals and a completely different system design as well so what's a flow battery then so redox flow battery is where all your charge goes into the solution so where we talked about electrodes and then an electrolyte in between them earlier in normal batteries your electrodes are what matter and that's where all the charge is kept but in a flow battery it's all kept in the electrolytes so you have these chemicals in solution that can take on charge and they can give back charge depending on which way you want your flow to go in your battery and then you store these solutions in big tanks so they're separate from the electrodes and that means you can scale up your tanks depending on how much storage you need or you can scale up the number of electrodes in the middle depending on how much power you need. Catherine, you mentioned that the electrolyte is the important thing here. So what's novel in this area then? What we use here, here as the state of the art is vanadium. So vanadium ions in solution, nothing is solid in there. They are charging, discharging in different states depending on what you need. But also we are moving away from metal-centred flow batteries as well. So we're trying to look at technologies where we don't have metals in there at all because they have geopolitical issues associated with them. Catherine, if I may, if you've got a battery system that's built around a liquid, you're saying the electrolyte is the charged thing and the electrodes are less important. That sounds to me very much like the petrol that we put in a car tank. So have we not got a really nice solution here which uses much of the infrastructure we already have for dispensing an energy-rich fuel into a car? You could just fill up your car battery with a charged electrolyte and then when the charge has been used up, you drain that depleted electrolyte out and replace it with some complete charged electrolyte again. It is not a crazy idea, actually, but unfortunately, vanadium flow batteries and most flow batteries, the energy density is too low. So you're looking at something that's 10 times less dense in energy than than a lithium-ion battery. Uh, So it wouldn't be feasible because petrol has a very high energy density, even though the system is quite inefficient. But there are people researching. So up in Glasgow, for example, there are people who have been researching these new materials which would deliver very high energy density liquid electrolytes. So that could be an option in the future, but it's quite far away at the moment. And what about price, Catherine? Because I've I've been talking to some people who live in, for instance, remote parts of Australia. They're very reliant on solar, for example. And so for them, the ability to store a lot of charge in a decent battery, it can be a, a life-changing thing. But how much does it cost to install a rig for, say, a domestic setup? It depends on the rig you have, but it, you're looking at installing it coupled with solar. That would influence the cost as well. And then you've got your battery management system. So there's lots of different components. It's not all dependent on the battery itself but you're looking at tens of thousands of pounds for a home storage system but it's equivalent to an electric vehicle 
But then I suppose if you've got the electric car parked in the garage and the mm-hmm. stationary battery in the utility room, okay, is, are we getting to the point where everyone's basically got their own power station at home? Is this not I overkill? So. I don't. I, I personally wouldn't want to cycle my car battery because that battery is not designed to, to do many cycles. I would want that load of a long lifetime for a home battery storage system uh, to be on something that's designed for that purpose. Catherine Toghill from the University of Lancaster, thank you very much. Now, from storing energy through to paying for it, obviously, if you plug your electric car in at home, it's your domestic electricity bill that's going to get charged. But what worries prospective electric motorists the most is what about if you need to charge it up while you're out and about? Well, this is at the moment one of the big weaknesses in the system. Although there are potentially lots of charging points, as Elspeth Brown explains, there are lots of players in the market and you need to be signed up with several of them to charge your vehicle. We have used BP Charge Master Polar today. This is a subscription card and then you get access to this charging network with a per pence kilowatt hour. On the motorways, there's the Ecotricity, Ionity Networks, there's the Tesla Supercharger Network. There's hundreds of people getting into the public charging space. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are only available perhaps on the motorway. So I have on my normal keys about four or five of these different fobs, plus a few apps on my phone. It is becoming difficult and they're all different price per kilowatts and it's all ever slightly different. We're trying to create a solution, which is a roaming card that We'll reduce it all onto one card or as many networks that want to work with us and then it will come onto either your Octopus Energy bill or take it off your card. Elspeth Brown. So watch this space is the bottom line. But let's turn to a different question now, which is how we recycle electric cars when they reach the ends of their lives. And we need to plan for this because the industry will struggle to continue to source materials needed to make new cars and batteries if we haven't got a way to supplement supplies of raw materials. Megan McGregor spoke to Birmingham University's Gavin Harper about the way forward. If you take a battery and you were able to um, slice it apart very carefully without contaminating um, the materials in the battery, and if you were able to scrape off the cathode material from the electrode, and then you might apply some processes to improve its quality, and then coat that material straight into a new battery, that's direct recycling. And the benefit of that process is that it's not just about recovering the raw materials that go into the battery, it's also about preserving the structure in the cathode materials and obviously a lot of energy, a lot of effort goes into creating that structure of the cathode material. It seems to me to assume that the battery chemistry will stay fairly constant. Are there recycling possibilities if down the line the battery chemistry changes? So for example, the amount of a material that's required goes up or down? I think the main challenge at the moment is around cobalt. Batteries with high cobalt content are very energy dense, which is good from the perspective that it gives electric vehicles um, a really good range. The challenges around sourcing cobalt mean that there's a real push to try and reduce its use in electric vehicle batteries. Cobalt largely comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
the conditions in which it's mined would cause a lot of concern. Children that are working in mining and a sort of unregulated industry that runs alongside the sort of mainstream mining industry. There's work that's ongoing at the moment to look at, um, first of all, if you've got, for example, um, a range of different cobalt chemistries and you've mixed everything together, how can you segregate those different cathode materials in a direct recycling process so that's step one and then secondly there's work ongoing to look at if you've got chemistry of one cobalt formulation can you reformulate that into a different battery chemistry by adjusting the mix Um, and I think they're both really interesting avenues of exploration for direct recycling. And is it possible in future that if we manage to reduce the cobalt concentration in future batteries that it may become desirable to recycle the batteries of today more immediately because of their high cobalt concentrations? Yes, so I think there's a real tension between recycling and reuse and if we think about how the market for recycled batteries might operate, if a battery comes out of a car and it's still got useful life in it, then that has an economic value. And so our normal approach would be to reuse that battery and extract the most life um, out of it, you know, squeeze the pips out of it, as it were. However, you could imagine a situation in the future where the supply of cobalt was constrained, either because of the supply chain or processing capability or the mining. And in that situation, it might be advantageous to recycle batteries early that are of a high cobalt chemistry if you had a technique whereby you could produce more batteries with a lower cobalt chemistry from the same resource. I think you can look at what's optimum from a resource allocation and and, and resource efficiency angle but then that's obviously going to run into the buffer of um, real world economics. Gavin Harper there from the University of Birmingham. We began this week by handing the keys of an electric car to Megan McGregor, who normally drives a standard petrol car. So what was her verdict? After a weekend using an electric car, what do I think? Well, first off, I think a lot of the concerns about range haven't really kept up with reality. I had no issue while I was pottering around this weekend, and unless you're driving 60 miles each way to work every day, I wouldn't foresee any problems for day-to-day use. I still have a bit of lingering concern about charging. I was able to make do with the charging point at the park and ride this weekend, but I honestly wouldn't want that to be a long-term solution. All the different charging networks give you choice, but it feels pretty overwhelming for a newcomer. From the people I've spoken to for this show, it seems everything is a lot more manageable if you can get a home charger installed, but I'm not in a position to do that. That said, if you can get a home charger, I think you're on to a winner, and I do hope that public charging infrastructure develops to a point where not being able to charge at home doesn't feel like a barrier to owning one of these cars. So it sounds like it's pretty much a yes from Megan, barring the charging concerns. Well, I've got to replace my car at some point this year, so at least I now have a little bit more to think about. And now, to finish the show, it's time for Question of the Week. And Mel Jean Singh has been busy retrieving this answer about the canine brain. 
from tiny chihuahuas to giant Great Danes. Their head size is hugely different, as must be their brain size. Does this mean that a Great Dane is massively more intelligent than a chihuahua? Dogs are indeed one of the most morphologically diverse mammals on the planet, with the smallest dogs weighing up to 17 times less than the largest dogs. This means that some dogs can have a brain twice as big as other dogs. On the forum, Alan Calvert made the point that we also need to define intelligence in a dog. To answer this, we approached biological anthropologist Daniel Horschler from the University of Arizona, who published a study last year that looked at brain size specifically in dogs. We studied over 7,000 dogs from 74 different breeds and found that breeds with larger brains do have better cognitive skills that help animals control their behavior. Dogs with bigger brains have better self-control. After being forbidden from taking a treat, they were able to wait longer before giving in to the temptation of stealing it, even after controlling for their training history. Larger-brained breeds also have better short-term memory, as they were better at remembering the location of hidden food after delays ranging from one to two and a half minutes. Although big-brained dogs were more skilled in some areas, they were not better at physical reasoning or understanding simple social cues, like responding to pointing gestures. While it appears that differences in brain size could make larger dogs more skilled in some areas, it's not fair to say that they're massively more intelligent than their smaller counterparts. So, what makes brains more intelligent? I spoke to Tim Rittman, a neurologist at Cambridge University, to wrap my brain around it. There are a number of factors that make brains more intelligent. Size helps, but it isn't everything. As a brain has developed through evolution, the most recent addition has been the frontal lobe. This handles parts of behaviour and planning, so-called executive functions. One way to make the brain more efficient is to have folds, which is why the human brain looks so wrinkly, but a hedgehog or a mouse brain is smooth. These folds help shorten the distances between any two given brain regions, making the brain more efficient. So ultimately, how intelligent your dog is depends partly on size for some brain functions, but also on balancing the cost of brain connections or wiring against having an efficiently organised brain. Thanks to Tim and Daniel for their answers. Next week, it's Steve's question about fusion. With the advent of fusion power apparently being only 20 years away and the construction of commercial prototype to start soon, how much do we expect to get out of this energy-wise for what we put in? Is it twice as much out or a thousand times as much out? And is it also true that nobody has managed to get out more than they put in to date? Do you know the answer? Well, if you do, we'd love to hear it. Nakedscientist.com slash question. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join in the debate on our forum. It's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And there we must park it for this week. Thanks very much to our contributors, Elspeth Brown, David Hall, Catherine Toghill, Gavin Hopper and Claire Miller. Thanks to Megan McGregor, who put the programme together, and Katie for helping to present it. Next week, it is Q&A time. That means... You send in the questions and we supply the answers. You can send them in. In the meantime, if you have something that you're absolutely burning to find out, it's nakedscientist.com forward slash question. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, from Katie and from me, goodbye. Goodbye.